Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. I don't know what song this actually is, but all I can hear is a best of booty mix in my head <laughs> that has a, a line that features "Ooh, look what you made me do look what you made oh me do. Solid. which i'm pretty the, sure is taylor swift that is so. taylor swift uh this is sam smith and normani from is it pussy cat dolls or little mix i can never remember which uh, but it's sam smith oh okay sam smith excellent songwriter yes so well we are back here on uh, this very old saw, inflation. Um, and if you've paid any attention to the news for the past forever, the, but mainly the last several months, you've probably heard nearly unending daily talk about the inflation rate. Um, according to the U.S. Bureau of La Labor Statistics, the consumer price index rose 6.8% from November 2020 to November 2021. Um, if you don't know, the CPI, our Consumer Price Index, is a measure of the average change over time in the prices paid by urban consumers for a market basket of consumer goods and services, which is super easy to understand. It basically means that it's a measure used to determine how prices of things that we buy every day, like food and fuel, etc., are changing over time. Yeah. In more concrete terms, it means that if you paid $10 for a specific group of products in November 2020, you would now pay $10.68 for that exact same group of products. This probably doesn't seem like a terribly large number. After all, $0.68 cents doesn't really register as a lot of money for most people in the U.S. There's not much that you can do with it. But let's put that in context. The average rate of inflation in the United States from 2010 to 2020 was 1.89%. This means that the rate of inflation from 2020 to 2021 was about 3.6 times higher than average. When you begin to talk about things like how much you spend a year on groceries, things get a little bit more telling. In 2020, the average cost of groceries for a U.S. household was $4,942 per year. If that same household bought the exact same groceries in 2021, they would spend $5,278. Again, it's not catastrophically high, but it is distinctly higher. If you happen to run a small business with narrow profit margins, say a neighborhood lawn and garden store, competing with higher inflation can be what pushes you from being profitable to going into debt. When the average consumer has to use more of their money to buy staples for living, a lot of things suddenly become luxuries, which can cause a stagnant economy and deepen economic problems. Much of what runs our world uh, operates on closer margins than you'd think. Um, so these seemingly small shifts can have outsized impacts. Uh, take into account that 56% of American consumers are living paycheck to paycheck. That extra 6.8% suddenly becomes much more painful. It's not going to drown anyone immediately, but it's very much going to contribute to a death by a thousand cuts, basically. 
in the midst of all of this discussion about high inflation, and we're not going to talk about uh, record inflation. We're not going to use that phrase because it is not, in fact, <laughs> record-setting inflation. It's nowhere close to that. So if you hear that phrase, that person is lying. Um, it's, I mean, since the since <laughs> Since the introduction of CPI, the highest inflation rate observed was 19.66%, which was in 1917. Um, the highest year-over-year -year rate observed before the CPI was an incredible 29.78%. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. But that was that was back in the late 1700s, a long time ago. Um, so regardless, this is not record setting by any means, unless you are intentionally restricting the window of time that you consider to make it sound really, really bad. <laughs> we're not even halfway to what we were in the early 80s, which was somewhere in the 14%. So we're doing okay, all things considered. Still not great, mm -hmm. but not near as catastrophically bad as people are kind of crowing about. Mm-hmm. Regardless, in the middle of this inflation, the Biden administration has been trying to pass massive spending bills like the $2 trillion Build Back Better plan. Um, and we've talked about how large a sum of money $1 trillion is. Uh, hint, it's a lot. <laughs> like a lot, a lot. Um, so $2 trillion at a time when people are feeling relatively strapped for cash automatically raise some concerns. Wouldn't spending this much money make inflation worse? That's the thought process. Um, we're not covering that particular question in depth on this episode, uh, but the very short answer is it's undecided. Depending on who you ask and how they're slicing their data, it could either make it worse, it could make it better, or it could have little to no impact at all. I'm personally of the opinion uh, that this would have little impact on the actual rate of inflation, just for the record. Yeah. And then there are gas prices. Regular gas costs, on average, 58.7% more than it did a year ago. November 2020, it averaged $2.20 a gallon. November 2021, last month, it averaged $3.49 a gallon, according to the Federal Energy Information Administration. Which, I mean, like, yikes. That's roughly $22 more to fill up a 16-gallon tank, which is almost as much as it costs to fill up mine. Mine, I have an 18-gallon tank when I, you know, forget to put gas in it. Uh, <coughs> and it, it's painful. Yeah. It's, it's real painful. Fuel prices are really finicky to work into a number like the CPI, though, because, well, like we talked about in season two, episode 12, pumped up prices, where we talked about how gas prices work, mm -hmm. fuel prices are set far more by the global market than they are on the national scale. So thanks for that one, OPEC. <laughs> so combine that with the increasing demand for better wages, record high rates of Americans leaving their jobs and record job openings, and you have a picture of deep unease with the national, maybe even the global economy. And that kind of sets the scene for where we are today. Um, people are concerned. We, we, we really jumped right into this one without much warning there. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure you felt it. People are concerned about what's going on with the inflation rate, um, why things are more expensive, um, and, and just what's going on right now. So um, we wanted to address that a little bit and kind of see if we could explain a, a little bit about the, the picture of what's going on here at large. Also, unfortunately, and despite our best efforts, people are still talking about inflation as if we are going to skyrocket into the double and single digits uh, like Venezuela. Yeah, which is that's why we decided to talk about this again. Was it because we've been proven wrong by our bold predictions that the United States was not about to become the next Venezuela? Uh, if you weren't here for that episode in season one, episode 39, where we last addressed the idea of inflation, we looked at it in the context of a listener question. One of our listeners was getting a lot of pressure from a loved one who was convinced that because inflation was on the rise, this was July 2021, 
America was on the fast track to becoming the next Venezuela, and pretty, pretty soon, he was sure, a dozen eggs was going to cost more than a month's wages. But as we explored the perfect storm of economic chaos that descended <laughs> on Venezuela and caused the very extreme situation there, we quickly discovered that there was far more than vanilla inflation at play there. It took a special type of socialist economic policy, a GDP that was completely dependent on a government-owned resource, huge market losses for said resource, and then several years of political upheaval to get to where the Venezuelan economy is now. Yeah, so even with all of the talk about inflation in the American economy at the end of 2021, there are no strong indicators that we are in danger of a similar crisis. So, no. <laughs> still not still not wrong that we aren't on the fast track to massive hyperinflation and $200 cups of coffee. Yeah. But one thing that we didn't do in depth in that episode was explain exactly what inflation is. So let's take a quick second to refresh that, maybe go a little bit into more detail about what inflation is specifically. Yeah. Inflation is best described as the decline of purchasing power of a given currency over time. Last time we talked about how inflation can be demonstrated by looking at the cost of coffee and removing money from the equation by replacing it with a different good, like stone. Paper money, at its core, is basically a representation of debt. Essentially, I'll give you this slip of paper or this coin or whatever to represent that I owe you a sum of goods equivalent to the value of the cup of coffee that you gave me. It's an IOU. That person can then go back to the original purchaser and can return the slip of paper in exchange for, say, an equivalent value of baked goods. Or they can take it to a third party and exchange it for an equivalent value of whatever that person has to sell. It's a universal stand-in for well, anything. And using money moved us away from a barter-based society. Now, it used to be that you could take a dollar and exchange it for a fixed amount of gold as opposed to buying gold at market value. It was different. You weren't buying the gold. You were cashing in your IOU. Um, basically, the, the paper money represented a debt of gold owed to you by the government, which you could go in and exchange at theoretically any time. Instead of a general IOU something of equivalent value, it was more like the government owes you a very specific amount of gold. Now, we've moved on from the gold standard to something that's called fiat currency, which basically means money is worth something because the government said it was. <laughs> but that's a, that's a topic for a different time. It will, time. You will hear that a lot. You will hear the term fiat currency a lot, especially with discussions around cryptocurrency, around uh, Bitcoin, all of that, and, and you know, why... Uh, blockchain is better than fiat. It's a uh, it's a hot word, hot <laughs> word amongst the crypto crowd. Um, but in theory, the idea is that money represents a value owed to the holder of that currency, whatever it is. Yeah, inflation is when the money that we have been using begins to represent a smaller and smaller amount of debt. The cup of coffee for which we once paid one IOU slip now costs two IOU slips. If we were still on the gold standard, each dollar would be worth a smaller amount of gold. Which is, I'm sure, an over-explanation of what currency is and how it relates to inflation. But if we don't throw in snippets of higher level ideas like the credit theory of money as we try to explain very basic concepts, then, well, did we even really try? No, we didn't. We really got to flex those. I read way too deeply into this and wanted to make sure that I covered it. <laughs> Must True story. <laughs> oh, I, can, I can understand this well enough. Um, that's actually a very complicated theory that is way more in-depth than anything that we covered here. Um, there's great reading on it online. We've got a book that's linked in our show notes if you are interested. Um, really... I, Practically speaking, for the consumer, inflation really boils down to um, <laughs> inflation makes stuff get more expensive. Um, so a lot of people automatically assume it's bad because when you go to the store 
a pound of beef that used to cost, you know, $4 now costs six. And that means that you can buy less beef, um, which is generally not a desirable situation to be in. Um, however, the reality is that inflation is a necessary part of the economy, albeit within reasonable limits. Now, right now, we're on a bit bit on the high side of, of inflation, of desirable levels of inflation. Normally, the Federal Reserve tries to keep it to around 2% a year. Um, it is the Federal Reserve's job to control inflation. Not the president, not Congress, not your local senator, the Federal Reserve. And uh, we actually need to do a whole episode on the Federal Reserve and what it is, uh, because I think it will surprise people. Uh, a lot of people are kind of fooled by the name that the Federal Reserve is a federal organization. It is not. <laughs> it's not owned by the government. So we definitely should explore that one, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. For now, though, I think we should probably talk about why it is that right now in this situation, we're experiencing this high inflation. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that I have the answer to that. Yes. Go. Mm -hmm. Hit me. It's all Biden's fault. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If only he'd kept the whole world from shutting down during the pandemic and then forced privately owned businesses to bend to the will of the U.S. government. Yeah. Wait. No. No. What? No. Are you trying to tell me that he literally can't do those things? Not even a little bit. But what if I really want to blame him? It's still super illegal. <sighs> Boo. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, this isn't Biden's fault or Trump's fault for that matter. Unless you can think of a way that Trump could have stopped a global pandemic from sweeping through the entire world, which, yeah, no, still not possible. Yeah. Um, however, yes, this is one more thing that you can blame on COVID-19, <laughs> at least in part, in part. Um, the big picture answer to why inflation is so high is complicated, and it's still being untangled. Uh, we don't know all of the factors, but we can narrow it down, uh, or we can narrow down the causes at least to some of the following factors. When everything shut down in 2020, well... Everything shut down, not just our shops and our schools, but spending as well. People didn't have the money coming in that they normally would, which meant that they simply were not spending the money that they normally would. Discretionary spending was incredibly low, meaning that people were going without things that were more wants than needs. Instead of spending a little extra money on toys and clothes, people were keeping what they had and trying to make it last longer. This is only natural when you've been furloughed, laid off, or otherwise sent home from work. Finding a job last year was almost impossible. In short, demand for goods and services was unusually low, which is why we saw prices, especially fuel prices, plummet. People simply weren't driving. Why would they buy gas? This also hit our global supply chain. The supply chain is how goods get from a manufacturer to your front door. And it includes things like planes, cargo ships, semis, trains, FedEx, UPS, the U.S. mail. Yes, all of those things. But it also includes things like computer chips. See, we're also in the midst of a global shortage of computer chips. This hit pretty simultaneously with the pandemic. And it might not seem like a huge deal if you're not particularly tech savvy. But everything Everything, okay, not really everything, but functionally everything, everything relies on computer chips, your car, your appliances, and yes, the vehicles that are part of the supply chain to get the goods to your door, but also the computers that plan the routes, telephones used to coordinate pickups, stoplights, road sign, GPS satellites, weather radar, radios, all of the things that help provide information to allow the logistical planning of delivering your Amazon order are just a little harder to repair, to replace, uh, just a little more expensive. They take just a little longer to get everything in. Now you multiply that across a global scale and those little delays and expenses 
really add up. That doesn't even take into consideration the labor shortages experienced by the factories that produce the goods that you're buying. Factories in places like China, South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, Germany, essentially the manufacturing giants of the world were all hit hard by the spread of coronavirus. Factories shut down or forced to work reduced schedules, causing a domino effect as shipping companies began to cut back on their schedules because there simply wasn't enough to justify running pre-pandemic shipping amounts. But this was a mistake. Because while purchasing did decrease, especially initially, it rebounded fiercely. Even during the pandemic, specific goods were in very high demand. Suddenly, everyone's houses were also schools and offices and gyms and 24-7 entertainment wonderplexes. Or people were trying to turn them into that, at least. Using my own house as an example, and me, <laughs> um, I, let's see, I took the time to hardscape our backyard, add hundreds of feet of raised flower beds, build a fire pit, a paver patio, a paver walkway, pour a concrete deck, thanks mostly to my father-in-law, thank you, Tom, rip out my old driveway and pour a new concrete one, yet again, thank you, Tom, um, install pull-up bars and rings and build workout equipment and more. And that was just the first three months or so. <laughs> and that was just one household. I would have added gym equipment, except for the fact that you couldn't find the stuff anywhere because everyone was buying mm -hmm. gym equipment. Everyone was buying pavers. It, I had to like go to three different Home Depots to find enough pavers for the jobs that I was doing. Um, and thank God for sandbags, because otherwise I would have been stuck doing bodyweight exercises forever. And I hate that a great deal. That sounds like, worst. that sounds horrible. horrible. And you did all of that to make your place a little bit more enjoyable to live in. Right. There were also runs on more practical things like office chairs and desks and printers and new cooking equipment because suddenly people not only had time to cook, but a reason. Home construction materials like paint and lumber and sheetrock suddenly jumped in prices as people began to transform the spaces that they were forced to spend their time in. We rebuilt our deck, but then yeah. we didn't build a pool deck because we couldn't find the lumber to build a pool deck because everyone yeah. else had bought it. And all of these demands came relatively at the same time. They overwhelmed the system. Factories couldn't keep up. They tried. But manufacturing more to meet demand requires more materials with which to make your product. But sometimes your materials came from the other side of the world, straining a shipping system that had pared down operations. This ran headlong into the fact that we had a global shortage of shipping containers. You know, the big steel boxes that you see on cargo ships and semi-trailers. Yeah, we didn't have enough. Yeah, because containers were initially loaded up with medical supplies like masks and gloves and then sent off to places like West Africa and South Asia. But these places don't ship a lot of things back to China. They just don't export a lot. So tons, literally and figuratively, of these containers ended up on one-way trips and they just piled up. It's too expensive to send a special ship uh, to, to pick up and carry empty shipping containers or to just load up ships with empty shipping containers. Because if there's nobody paying for those shipping containers, that means that the people unloading them don't get paid. That means that the people loading them don't get paid. That means that the fuel that's used to transport them doesn't get paid for. And that just does not work. It is too expensive. So anybody doing that would have to basically privately fund it out of their own pocket. And nobody's doing that. So what containers were available went from costing, say, $2,000 for a trip from China to California to costing more like $25,000. Mm -hmm. And during all this time, people were quarantining. <laughs> so even when ships did arrive to port and the, and the steel containers did get there, they had to wait for weeks to load and unload because there were limited workers available to move the product off of and onto the ships. 
once they were on the ships, or sorry, once they were off the ships, right, once they had reached their destination, there were limited truck drivers to move the products to their next destination. And then the Ever Given was pulled. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Ever Given, right? Yeah, they pulled the biggest prank in the world history and blocked the Suez Canal, which further disrupted uh, trade routes and delayed deliveries. When shelves started looking a little thin between delayed deliveries, companies started doing the sensible thing and ordering more for each shipment so that they could wait longer between deliveries and weather these delays better. Except that just puts more strain on an already overburdened supply chain. And then, compounding the issue even further, food prices have risen, in part due to extreme weather. Droughts in Canada and the northwestern United States have wiped out wheat crops. 93% of the wheat was in poor condition earlier this year in Washington state because it had basically been cooked to death by extreme heat. 95% of the western United States was experiencing some level of drought as of August of this year. Not all of this extreme weather is due to climate change. Some of it comes from natural cycles like La Nina. But climate change is increasing the frequency and severity of droughts, according to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. A report issued by the group this week found that droughts that may have only happened once a decade now happen 70% more often around the world. Conversely, the massive winter storm in Texas earlier this year caused at least $600 million in agricultural losses there, including livestock and citrus and vegetable crops. Severe frost in Brazil damaged coffee crops. Now, is this all the pandemic's fault? Yes, it is. And no, it's not. (laughs) The supply chain had bottlenecks before COVID hit. Companies kept their inventories only as stocked as they needed to be to meet the demand of the moment, and they could generally adjust quickly enough to handle changes in demand because the whole world wasn't experiencing a rapid shift in demand all at once. Companies had also been consolidating, as in the case of meat packers, for example. So when one company shuts down, it actually removes a significant portion of the capacity to produce meat products. What it all boils down to is that there has been a confluence of factors that have combined to form a black swan event that completely exposes the weakness of our supply chain, our global supply chain, not the U.S. supply chain, the world's supply chain, the way we get stuff moved. The surge in demand and shifting of the market caused by the pandemic exceeded the capacity that manufacturers and shipping companies could meet. Individual shortages compounded and cascaded, leading to downstream shortages and more shortages and more backups and more delays. And then weather and shipping problems slashed available supply at the same time that demand was skyrocketing. So when I think about everything that had to happen exactly wrong (laughs) for this scenario, I'm honestly surprised that inflation is only 6.8% because it's like a it's like a, 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 a symphony of catastrophe, how much stuff went wrong because of, of COVID and weather all combined to just yeah. screw us all over. It's crazy to me. Just call us Lemony Snicket because that was a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> <Boo>. <laughs> I know, that's terrible. That okay. was pretty bad, but I love it. <laughs> I love it. Right. Okay, so we're halfway through at this point, and we've talked about uh, what inflation is and why it got so crazy so fast and why most people who actually have to pay attention to the balance of their bank account are getting pretty antsy about where this thing is headed. But the big question on most people's minds is, is this a really bad thing? Is this permanent or long term even? Or is it just an inconvenience that we'll soon blame on 2020 like we do everything else that's gone pear-shaped in the last almost two years? 
Regular listeners to the show will be primed and ready to insert one of our many catchphrases here. It's complicated. No one seems to have a definitive answer for any of these questions. Is inflation bad? Well, it it can be. It makes important things that we buy every day more expensive, which can mean that we run through any savings we've accumulated or take out new credit cards to cover the gaps, especially as the workforce landscape is still in flux. A report from CNBC via Bankrate.com showed that 42% of Americans with credit card debt increased that debt during the pandemic. The Wall Street Journal tells us that 27% of Americans applied for new credit cards between October 2020 and October 2021. But inflation can also have some good effects. It can make paying off big debts like mortgages more effective, for example. Your payment doesn't change, but your house is probably worth more, which gives it more power as an asset. And inflation can also improve workers' ability to negotiate for higher wages. It's, it's probably not permanent, according to most experts. M- many agree that the supply chain issues that we're experiencing are contributing heavily to inflation. Once we're less dependent on having things delivered to our houses and more confident shopping in stores and spending time together, that strain is expected to ease up. The pandemic did a number on a lot of our economic systems, and we're still trying to figure out exactly what that means. But even once the spikes pass, the inflation rate may hang out at a higher level than we're used to. Jason Furman, a professor of economic policy at Harvard University, thinks that we could settle into a long-term rate of 2.5 or even 3%, which is significantly higher than the 2% we were all getting comfy with. He's more concerned with what happens while we're trying to manage these peak periods. If the Fed overcorrects, we could see a recession. If unexpected events happen in financial markets, they may overact. And all of this could impact the financial health of American workers. The reality of the matter is that the impact of inflation is really individual. One of the things that we always try to be aware of on this podcast when we're talking about these relatively big picture issues is whether we're considering perspectives that aren't always considered. As we take a closer look at inflation today, then we wanted to take some time to talk about what it can mean for some economic groups that don't often come up in conversations about this topic. We often talk about the stock market and investors and homeowners <laughs> and, and people like that, but right. here's the thing about inflation. Even though the inflation rate is technically the same for everyone, it can have a disproportionate impact on already economically disadvantaged groups. So even if we are not headed for an economic precipice, inflation can be a significant problem for those who are already struggling. Right. I mean, $100 to somebody who only makes $400 a month is a lot of money. Exactly. $100 to somebody who makes $400 anytime they sneeze, not such a big deal. And that's kind of the changes that we see with with moderately sized purchases of a few thousand dollars at 6.8%. That's like $100 difference. Mm-hmm. And that could break somebody who's been saving up for years to make that happen. Um, but it's not even going to be noticed by somebody who makes that much money before lunch. Right. Now, at the time of the 2020 census, Uh, Roughly 37 million Americans were living in poverty. For a family of four in the contiguous United States or D.C., uh, that means a household income of about $26,500. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the official poverty rate in 2020 was 11.4%, up from 10.5% in 2019. And that's the first increase in poverty after five years of decline. The most recent data tells us that black Americans still have the highest poverty rate at 19.5%. 17% of Latinx Americans are living in poverty, which is an increase from 2019. White Americans also experience an increase in poverty. Almost 
2% more children were living in poverty. That's now 16.1% up from 144 uh, in 2020 than in 2019. And the poverty rate also increased for households, including women. For these people and millions of other Americans who don't meet these guidelines, but still have household incomes below the median of $67,500, inflation feels like an outsized issue. First, lower income households are often paycheck to paycheck or hand to mouth consumers. Essentially, this means that they spend almost everything they earn between paychecks. Current surveys estimate that, like we said before, about 56% of Americans are living in this kind of economic situation. They don't often have the opportunity to save much of their income, and their access to credit through loans or credit cards is limited. There isn't much that they can do to preserve their purchasing power when their dollar doesn't stretch as far as it used to. When they do have access to credit, or more accurately, debt, uh, it is more likely to come from less than reputable lenders, to use a nice turn of phrase, um, like a payday loan or title loan companies or other loan sharks. Mm-hmm. These debts come with predatory interest rates and exacerbate the financial struggles these individuals experience. If you rack up a debt of several thousand dollars on a credit card that has a 30% interest rate, if you're, which exist, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're making your minimum payment every month, which is all that's required and likely all that people who are desperately racking up credit on an interest rate that high, uh, likely all those people can pay, it will take you decades to pay it off. Decades. Mm-hmm. Those, if you ever pay it off, if you ever pay it off, because sometimes the minimum rate of the minimum payment isn't enough to actually pay off your debt. It's just enough to keep the card open. Yeah. Folks living in low-income households are also often working in jobs or industries that offer few financial security benefits to employees. Cost of living increases, for example, are hard to come by when you're a fast food worker. I mean, In the contracting world, it's not uncommon to get a 1% raise year over year, which is insulting when Mm -hmm. the interest rate, or sorry, when the uh, interest rate, when the rate of inflation is like 2% plus, you end up making less. In the fast food industry, if you get a raise at all, it's a miracle. Yeah. (laughs) It's so rare. Um, These workers are also less able to negotiate their wages or ask for raises to compensate for rising prices of essentials. They basically have one option, and that's work more. Yeah. Do you be happy you have a job? Mm Mm-hmm. So when the cost of essentials like food and gas and safe housing rise, lower-income individuals are less able to navigate that change. And they become more vulnerable to things like malnutrition and job loss and homelessness. We also know that when economies are inflationary cycles, governments tend to take more stringent measures. Steeper interest rate hikes and reductions in fiscal spending result in a harsher slowdown of economic activity, with layoffs and a higher cost of borrowing affecting more of those living paycheck to paycheck. And I think I saw that... uh... The latest estimate for 2022 is going to be three interest rates hike, interest rate hikes, mm-hmm. as uh, as the Fed increases the timeline or shortens the timeline for the taper, um, which means next year it's going to get more expensive to borrow money. Mm-hmm. So you know, pro tip: if you're trying to get a mortgage, now's the time to do it. It is. Uh, <laughs> Well, and that raises another issue, too, because a lot of times people in these categories, if they are able to get a mortgage, they're more likely to end up in something called an adjustable rate mortgage that uh flexes with the Fed interest rate and how they hike it and change it. So if they do have a mortgage payment, there's an excellent chance that that's going to increase for them every time that those interest rates rise. Right. Um, So if you're going to get a mortgage, get a fixed rate. Fixed rate. Though the interest rate on a fixed rate is usually a little higher, I think, than what's like average for that time, but it stays there. Mm-hmm. So if if it goes up, you know, two, three, four percent next year, if the interest rates do, uh, you're okay. 
you're actually fine. And if it goes down, you just, just, it costs money. So just moment of privilege here. You just refinance it at the lower rate. Mm-hmm. Keep, keep pushing that down. Um, not that this is financial advice hour. Neither one of us are providing financial assistance or no. advice because we don't know what we're doing there. We're just mm-hmm. talking about what we've experienced ourselves. Exactly. So, Did just refinance my house. Congratulations. <laughs> Can't speak for that. But please don't sue us if you, you know. Yeah, don't. Take Mm-mm. these things as advice and do it and then end up losing money. Don't do that. Literally never take our financial advice. Please just don't. don't. <laughs> For these disadvantaged groups, who's just, who we should be talking about right now, the impact of inflation can also extend beyond literal purchasing power and affect local, state, and federal politics and policies with significant consequences. High rates of inflation tend to make us anxious about our economic future, which makes sense. Um, higher prices at the grocery store or the gas pump Higher rent and bigger heating bills make us feel like the folks in charge must not be doing their jobs well. Research consistently points to inflation as a key factor in people's voting decisions, and incumbents pay the price for their inability to control it. To quote an NPR article that we read on the internet, one of the lessons from inflationary eras past is that voters are less interested in causal responsibility than enforcing a change. In other words, if you're in office now, you're holding the bag. Yeah. Public polling is is pretty well confirming that widespread alarm. One poll before Thanksgiving showed that 87% of Americans polled were concerned about rising prices. As these concerns increase, the approval numbers for President Biden and the Democratic Party overall predictably go down. And that makes sense, right? But we know that the Democratic Party goes to bat more often when it comes to policies that overtly are intended to benefit marginalized and disadvantaged groups. In 2012, using census data from the previous 50 years, Researchers from the University of California, San Diego, found that economic outcomes for minority groups differed significantly under Republican versus Democratic presidents. Uh, For example, under Democratic presidents, Black families' incomes grew on average $895 per year. Under Republicans, they only increased by $142 per year. The unemployment rate for Black Americans fell by a net 7.9 percentage points across 26 years of Democratic leadership, but it went up by a net of 13.7 points during 28 years of Republican presidencies. Across the years of Democratic leadership, Black poverty declined by a net of 23.6 percentage points, but grew by three points when Republicans held the White House. Data for Latinx and Asian Americans does not reach as far back, but the results are similar. For Latinx folks, Democratic presidencies are associated with large annual gains in income, substantial declines in poverty, and real drops in unemployment. Latinx incomes grew an average of $627 annually under Democrats, but declined by an average of $197 annually under Republicans. Less consistent data for Asian Americans also suggest gains under Democrats versus stagnation under Republicans. And tellingly, white Americans make gains under Democrats too. On average, under Democratic administrations, white incomes have grown and white joblessness and poverty have declined. Now, lest we try to chalk these numbers up to coincidence or overgeneralization, The researchers were able to demonstrate that these partisan differences persist even after taking into account the overall state of the economy and longer-term trends in U.S. well-being. It wasn't just that Democrats inherited the good economies and Republicans were handed bad economies. The researchers held that everything points to a real and substantial partisan divergence. Controlling for inflation and changes in the gross national product and considering other factors like oil prices and the proportion of adults in the workforce, they found similarly large gains for minorities under Democrats and sharp losses under Republicans. The partisan trends were also remarkably consistent over many years. 
Black incomes grew in 77% of the years that Democrats held the presidency. Black poverty declined in 88% of those years. And Black unemployment fell in 71% of those years. And the longer Democratic administrations were in office, the more they appeared to help African Americans and other minorities experience economic gains. Unfortunately, according to their research, the longer Republican administrations held office, the more the fortunes of these groups suffered. Now, like we alluded to before, there were many policy differences between Democrats and Republicans reflected in that research that can help us explain minority gains under Democrats. Uh, primarily, or rather first at least, policies intended to boost the incomes and employment of poor or lower income Americans, like President Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, uh, to President Bill Clinton's expansion of the earned income tax credit, have a not insignificant role to play. <laughs> Racially targeted efforts like the Civil Rights Act or more recent initiatives to expand affirmative action in government hiring can impact the economic power of minorities, as can policies that disproportionately impact minority communities like immigration reforms. Any policy that encourages overall economic and job growth can make a positive difference for minorities along with everyone else. Democratic presidents tend to place more emphasis on those overall economic growth policies, while Republicans often stress reducing inflation, even if unemployment ticks up as a result. Right. And that's because some of the, the control measures, some of the things that you have to do to control inflation, that means that you have to slow down the economy a little bit. You have to make sure people are unemployed. And again, that's not saying that Inflation should be allowed to run rampant. It's just part of the cycle. And to that end, some recent studies even indicate that a democratic administration is better for the economy overall. A study from the National Bureau of Economic Research found that democratic presidents since World War II have performed better, as far as economic growth, than Republicans. On average, Democratic presidents grew the economy 4.4% each year versus only 2.5% by Republicans. A study by Princeton University economists Alan Blinder and Mark Watson found that the economy performs better when the president is a Democrat. They report that by many measures, the performance gap is startlingly large. Between Truman and Obama, growth was 1.8% higher under Democrats than Republicans. And Time out. Yes, we know that we just said that inflation is bad for disadvantaged groups and mentioned that Republican administrations tend to focus on reducing inflation overall while making the case that Democratic administrations are better for the economic health of minorities. But remember that these groups are also at a higher risk of unemployment when things constrict to reduce inflation. So the net benefit for them still lies, it would appear, with Democratic administrations. It's messy. It's really messy. So when we talk about issues like inflation that seem to have a blanket effect, it is important that we look at every angle of the issue as we're considering its impacts and how, or even whether, to solve it. But I think it's when you combine the fact that the people who suffer the most from high inflationary periods are the people who are economically disadvantaged, the poorest of our nation, right? They can't afford things to be more expensive because they can't afford things to be the price they are now. When you combine that fact with the majority of the population that lives under the poverty line, as we discussed a long time ago and several times, are minority populations or minority groups, you can see it's a direct line from how a blanket issue like inflation mm -hmm. has a disproportionate impact on specific groups of people. Yeah. And why we have to we have to aim for something like equity in our in our attempts to address these things because some people need help more than the others do because they're disproportionately impacted by things. 
And it's important that we are careful about the way that we frame these conversations about things like inflation as well, because we know that the more that we talk about inflation being a bad thing and the more we we focus on that rather than trying to find ways to increase equity in our economy, the more likely people are to be disgruntled with the way that things are happening and want to force a change. And right now, when you make that change, that changes from a Democratic administration to a Republican administration, which sounds like it would be a good fix, especially when we're we're all out here talking about how horrible this problem is. But in reality, we can see that it looks like the data supports that that's actually the wrong move. Right. Because you're reducing, they might, Republicans might focus on reducing inflation, which is great. But if you look at the economic outcomes as well, the fact that minority populations end up making less, that they end up uh, building their wealth less, then the trade-off is a net negative. Mm-hmm. Just because inflation is lower by itself doesn't mean that you're better off. Inflation could be higher, but you could also be making more and right. not earning that delta, that difference, and be better off. Now, obviously, the ideal, the best goal is keep inflation at that target 2% and you're making more and then that's better for right. everybody. And we have an equitable economy. Uh, right. But until we get there, we have to be really um, open and aware of the fact that pretty much anything that we do in this economy is going to have an outsized impact on disadvantaged groups. Right. So of we course. have to mm. choose what impact we want that to be and how we're going to try to solve for that rather than focusing on whether or not inflation overall is a good or bad thing. We have right. to we have to privilege check ourselves. We're talking about whether I'm okay with inflation because it increases the value of my house that I just refinanced versus you know, kids that go to the same school as my kids whose parents are working in fast food and are less able to afford important things for their kids' education. Like we we've, we've yeah. got to balance that privilege perspective out. Absolutely. Um Obviously, this is a deeper and more complicated topic than uh, even our our conversation here is able to yeah. begin to scratch the surface of. Um, we are trying to hit the high notes. There are going to be parts that are more nuanced than what we are able to get into here. There are going to be causes and effects that we just missed, frankly, um, mm-hmm. because we're trying to distill entire college degrees worth of information <laughs> into into a a one hour uh, consumable product for you um so this is not the end or the even the determinant <laughs> conversation about inflation this is a foundational primer basically so uh, hopefully you know we brought you some more clarity, a little more understanding about how this all works and how we got here. Um, If there's nothing else that you take away from it, then this one point, just remember, this is not any one president's fault. It's not any one country's fault. It is a global crisis that we are all having to work out and figure out together. Yeah. And if you think you've figured it out, Oh, there it is. You can let us know how to solve this inflation problem at www.firesidebreakdowns.com. And tell you what, we'll even split the guaranteed profits from sharing such a plan with you. We'll give you 60%. We'll only take 40%. That's how confident I am in you. You can solve this. Go do it. And then let us know. And then we'll help people figure it out too. Mm-hmm. Um, now that that crazy statement is over, <laughs> uh, that's a smooth segue too. Um, if you do go to our website, you can find uh, just about anything that you would need to check what we're talking about, including our uh, sources for each episode, our show notes, which are basically a rough script of uh, of what we talk about here. I know for this episode, I specifically counted them because we just kept adding sources and kept adding sources. We have 30, 30 sources in this hour-long episode oh, alone. Is that a record? Yeah. 
It's not a well for for an hour long episode. For, it yeah. might be for, a for week, our hour long episodes. It might be. Um, I know some of our earlier episodes had like forty or fifty references, right. but they were also like three hours long. Um, <laughs> they, they really were. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. Uh, we've learned. Um, we we're just so dang passionate. That's all. We'll recut them at some point into our, our chunks. Yeah. It'll be good. Okay some point that is not a uh, a promise of delivery at any time soon people <laughs> no it's about as good as um, our financial advice yeah um you can also find all of the 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 podcast there you can find um the links to our social media accounts facebook twitter instagram uh and you can find a link to our patreon if you would like to uh toss a coin to your researcher um, so we can keep doing this, maybe hire on some help, uh, to, to get this process a little smoother, which would be super cool. Get somebody to edit this or run our social medias, preferably one of those two things. Um, but if there's nothing else that you do, if there's not anything else that you take away from this episode, the one thing that we ask you to do is please leave a review. Please leave a review. Um, that drives attention to the podcast, which drives traffic, which gets more people listening. And really the end goal is to get as many people involved in this conversation as possible, because we truly, truly think that that is how we begin to solve the division in our country. More people on that talking. note, on that note, yes, I want some good news. I've got some good news. Yes. Give it to me. The good news is. There's yeah. even more incentive to give to charity this year. So if you hear us talking about folks who are economically disadvantaged or you have a passion burning in your heart to help solve the world's many problems, you can do that even more effectively this year thanks to the IRS. Most years, only what? folks... I know, right? Like, we literally never give props to the IRS. So we'll just chalk this up as the one time. The one time. <laughs> the one time. <laughs> Most years, only folks who itemize their tax returns can effectively deduct their charitable donations. But this year, however, most people can get a break for giving money to charity whether they itemize or not. The IRS joined with several nonprofit groups on Monday, December 13th, to spread the word about a special pandemic tax provision that can help the 85% of people who don't itemize get a tax credit for their generosity. Of course, you do have to give to an organization that is registered as a nonprofit with the IRS for the deduction to count, but most indiv individuals can deduct up to $300 in donations and couples can deduct up to $600. So it is a win-win, which is not something that gets said very often when you're talking about the IRS. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you need a, a, a nonprofit to donate to, the Critical Role Foundation is a good one. They Solid. do a lot of really good stuff. Um, the Prevent Cancer Foundation is a personal favorite of mine. Um, and the uh, Doctors Without Borders. Also a uh, great option. Those are the, <laughs> they're the ones that I donate to personally. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, if you need some ideas, those are some three high-level ones that I think are all great and worthy causes to donate to. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of an organization called Together Rising. Uh, it is at least um, spokespersoned by Glennon Doyle. I'm not sure what level she of administrative control she has, but they do a great job of taking donations and uh, spreading them out to the most urgent causes at any given time. So um, when we were making our very messy exit from Afghanistan. There was a lot of money going that direction. Yeah. Uh, when there were a lot of kids at the border, there was a lot of money going that direction. So that is my personal favorite contribution to throw out there as well. Very cool. Yeah. And that's similar to what the Critical Role Foundation does as well. They have yes. a slush fund that they redirect funds to any ongoing global crisis, um, as well as they help build and fund uh, lots of arts projects in, uh, I think it's California yeah. by and large, but doesn't matter. They're doing some incredible stuff. Some really, really like cool them. stuff through that organization. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. So check them out. I don't think I need to explain Doctors Without Borders or the Prevent Cancer Foundation. No. <laughs> There's the, the name's right there on the tin. Right. Um, so that is probably everything that we're going to bring to you this week. Um, so I think we'll have, let's see, this will come out after Christmas before mm-hmm. New Year's. So uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's to everybody. And then... We are planning to have a New Year's episode. Is that right? We will have one New Year's episode and then we take a break. Correct. So we'll have one more episode and then we are going to go on hiatus. And by hiatus, I mean we're taking a two-week vacation for ourselves to be sane for a couple of weeks, um, maybe catch up on some sleep. And uh, then we will resume uh, later on in January. So this episode, one more very beginning of the year, and then a two-week break. So until next week, thank you very much for listening to us, and take care of each other. (laughs) 